Today's readings are really interesting, especially given the season that we're in. We are in the season of Halloween, and the readings match really well. What I want to talk about is the nature of evil. This is a perfect time to do it, and so here we go. The Ezekiel reading, starting in verse 12, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. I don't think that the actual king of Tyre was in Eden. So what he's done is he has shifted focus. And what he's doing is he's talking about the spirit that is over the area of Tyre. So every precious stone was your covering, sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, you were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. So this is the cherub we're talking about. And remember we had cherubim that showed up at the Garden of Eden when the first couple got thrown out of there. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sin. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Now, when he says destroyed him from... That means pitched him out. It doesn't mean that he ceased to exist. What that led me to as I was reading this was, of course, Isaiah 14, right? 14 verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the holy mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. This is over the spiritual authority of Babylon. So we have Tyre and Babylon, in both cases, are being taken down, if you will, by God when they get too big for their britches. And last one, which sort of ties all this together, is Daniel chapter 10 and verse 12. And by way of background, for those of you who don't remember your Daniel, Daniel has been praying for three weeks and a messenger comes to him. And this messenger, as it turns out, is Gabriel, who is also a cherub. And then he, Gabriel, said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the very first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And I came to you to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. So what Gabriel is saying as he's coming to talk to Daniel is, it took me 21 days to get here because the spiritual authority over Persia 
withstood me. In other words, the spiritual authority over Persia didn't want me to come and deliver you this message, so I had to get Michael to come help me and duke it out with him so that I could get through to answer your prayer. What these three passages tell us is that there's a war going on in heaven. The earth is a battlefield in that war. There are not two separate wars. There's one God. And what you have is you have rebellion that's going on in heaven, which God is dealing with, and a battlefield is here on earth, and we have to be engaged in that battle. There are no neutrals in this battle, by the way. You're either on one side or the other. There are people who sort of go along and think they're neutral, but they're not. So as we look at this, there's sort of three campaigns going on in this battle from our perspective. We don't get to see a lot of what's going on in the heavenly part of it. We've got glimpses of it. You've got the book of Job. Of course, we got today's reading where Satan tempts the woman. We've got the reading in Ezekiel, which is today. We've got the reading in Isaiah. We've got the reading in Daniel. We've got the reading today at the birth of Messiah, where you have heavenly beings show up to announce the birth of the Messiah. And by the way, what's the reaction of the shepherds when these heavenly beings show up? Terror. That was Daniel's reaction also, was terror. And the first thing that the angels have to say to him is, fear not. That's also the first thing that Gabriel has to say to Daniel is, don't be afraid. Here, I'll put my hand on you. You need to stand up. So understand that the war that's going on in heaven is sort of like the difference between infantry and heavy artillery. I mean, the main campaign is intense stuff. And when they showed up here on earth, the natural reaction of us is terror. So there's three campaigns going on on the earth. The first one is for the human heart. And one of the things that happens, of course, in today's reading, when Eve eats of the forbidden fruit and gives to her husband, you have then the corruption of the human heart. Because as we go farther along in Genesis and also in the prophets, God will recognize that the human heart is evil continuously. So that's the first battleground, is the battleground for your heart. Is your heart going to be turned to God, or is your heart going to be turned to your own devices and be used by Satan? Second battlefield is the culture. And if you haven't noticed, our culture is kind of in the pit. We don't have a good culture. And so that's the second one. And then the third is the government. In other words, how do we organize ourselves and govern each other and of course, as somebody once said, politics is downstream from culture. So if the culture is corrupt, the government's going to be corrupt. But it is in fact the case that human rulers tend to arrogate power to themselves. That's just sort of a natural thing that we do. And it's very hard to keep that from happening. The United States has been better at it than most, but as you can see, we have drifted way away. So those are sort of the three campaign areas of going on. I've told you about this guy, Bruce Carlton. He's the Brit who fancies himself in the same mode as uh, Tolkien and so forth. He had an interesting observation about evil and the face of evil. 
And it's true, so I'm going to tell it to you. I had never thought of it before. It's not my thought. When the culture is generally righteous, evil is beautiful and tempting. When the culture becomes corrupt, evil becomes ugly and coercive. So, let's take a look. In the garden, perfect place. What technique does Satan use to tempt the woman? He comes as a thing of beauty. In fact, the word Nahash, which is the Hebrew word for the serpent, also means the shining one. So he comes as an angel of light. He comes as something beautiful. He presents sin as something desirable. So when the culture is essentially virtuous, evil presents itself as beautiful and tempting. The whole point here is the woman is not on her guard against something ugly. Everything is tempting, beautiful, desirable. Once evil gets to be in the majority, then it becomes ugly and coercive. Look at our culture today. Look at what's happening in our cities. Look at what happens if you speak up against the culture right now. You lose your job. People will come and beat you up. People will burn down your business. So as evil becomes more predominant, its face becomes coercive and ugly, which is, by the way, where we are now. And that's a reflection of our culture. Because one of the battlefields is the culture, and as our culture has descended and descended and descended, what we now find is that the face of evil becomes uglier and uglier and more coercive. So, let's start with the garden, which is where we are today. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is speculation on certainly the part of the rabbis and lots of other people that the problem with the knowledge of good and evil is that we weren't ready for it. In other words, one of the reasons it was created is at some point God intended to give it to us. We took it. Instead of waiting for God's timing, we did it in our own timing, which is why we became mortal. And the question becomes, who decides what's right and wrong? Who decides what's good and evil? As the first family was in the garden, God says, that's my decision. I will tell you what good is and I will tell you what evil is. And what happens when we eat of the fruit is we become able to tell that ourselves and we don't do a very good job. We don't do a good job at all. Because what we do is we follow our own hearts, which are evil continually, and we wind up thinking that things that are actually evil are good. By the way, notice our culture. Our culture says, for example, homosexuality is normal and good. God says, no, it's not. Our culture says that theft is normal and good. As long as you don't steal from me, it's okay. God says, no, it's not. So what we want to be is a law unto ourselves, which is autonomous. It's a word I've used a lot of times. Autonomos, which means we make our own laws. That's what we want. The next thing we have is Cain and Abel. And what happens when Cain is not approved 
in his behavior by God. He turns around and he can't murder God. So he takes the next closest thing, which is his brother, who has made him look bad, and he murders him. So we have the same phenomenon going on in the United States. There's lots of examples. I'll use one. Say the NRA. You have people on the left who demonize the NRA every time there's a shooting. Well, the NRA has nothing to do with that. But they turn and they want to murder, quote-unquote, the NRA because it's going against what they want to do. Nothing to do with it. They're not involved. There's nothing to do with it. But they turn and they focus and their attitude is murder. Does anybody have any doubt that Antifa or Black Lives Matter or something like that would stop short of murder? They haven't stopped short of murder. You understand what's happening? This goes all the way back to Cain. And the idea there is when you look bad in the eyes of God or the eyes of the culture, what you do is you turn around and you murder somebody who is innocent who is making you look bad, quote-unquote. So let's look at the tactics of the evil one. And we see some of them today in Genesis. I mean, there's, there's one playbook, and he uses the same playbook over and over and over again because it keeps working. So the first one is temptation. That's when he's operating in the mode of the shining one the beautiful one. He makes sin look attractive. Go ahead and eat of it. It'll make you wise. God didn't really say that. And look at me. I'm the shining one. I'm handsome. I'm beautiful. Remember it said over the king of Tyre, you were in the garden of Eden. Let's go back to that. That's what's important. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings on the day that you were created and prepared. So the shining one who was in the garden is described for us here in Ezekiel. And so he's look, the woman looks at him, it, I don't know whether it's a him or not, but the woman looks. Wow, this is really attractive guy. And he's pointing me at this tree, which is really an attractive piece of fruit. And wow, this will make us wise. So the first tactic is temptation, which is to talk up something that you kind of already want to do. The second one is deception. And again... We see that in the garden, don't we? So deception comes in two flavors. One is confusion, and the other one is co-option. We'll talk about confusion first. What is the first thing that the serpent says to the woman? Did God really say that? Has God really said that? So what he's trying to do is confuse her. Now, she has gotten the word from the man. And she took it into her head and 
apparently didn't get it exactly right because what she says is we can't eat of it nor can we even touch it well God didn't say he couldn't touch it he said don't eat it but what she's done is she has sort of stacked a prohibition on top of the one that was actually given and what Satan does is then comes in and confuses her have you been listening to the political advertisements that are going on today are they trying to sow confusion of course they are it's a standard tactic by the way one of the things I've said lots of times before and I'll say it again because it's true if you look at the confusing statements and let's use politics as an example we could use lots of things but politics is hot right now and somebody says wait a minute they just said this here and this here they've contradicted themselves how can they do that that's a feature not a bug because what it does is it takes logical people like my dear wife and it gets her spinning around in little circles says, wait a minute wait a minute this isn't logical and so what she does is she wastes time and emotional bandwidth on it when the confusion and the deception and the illogic is deliberate it is impossible to embarrass a deceiver you can't embarrass them you can't say wait a minute that's illogical oh my gosh you're right I have an inconsistent position I must do something have you ever seen that happen certainly not that's what I say the illogical is a feature it's not a bug because what it does is it takes people of goodwill and people who can think clearly and see clearly and it ties them up in a little spin as they're trying to figure out wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute this isn't right it's done deliberately so co-option is the next one and again I've talked about this before what happens is any institution that is not explicitly godly will at some point become satanic and those that are godly will eventually become satanic it just takes longer what the enemy does is he comes in and he infiltrates organizations and he replaces the people who are good with his own people look at our colleges today I had a friend 25 years ago who was an English major and he was working on his PhD when I knew him and he finally got his PhD in English and one of the things that he said is in the English journals it is now completely unacceptable to say anything in any way negative about a homosexual you can't do it this is 25 years ago so what's happened is the normal discourse in the English language, the language of Shakespeare and Milton and those folks has been gradually co-opted and the people who are truly scholars have been replaced with people who have an agenda and that agenda is evil so anything that is not explicitly godly will eventually become satanic and if it is explicitly godly like the Catholic Church for example it just takes longer we now have a Pope who has said oh well we need to do some kind of civil union thing he has stopped short of marriage but you get the idea he's drifting in that direction by the way that's what the parable of the birds in the mustard bush is about birds in the parable are evil and a mustard bush that gets big enough 
becomes the home of birds, which is to say satanic influence which co-opt the organization. Church wasn't designed to be a worldwide bureaucracy. That's a human creation, that's not a godly creation. And then the third tactic of the evil one is intimidation. So temptation first, he comes and looks like an angel of light and makes him look good. Number two is he tries to confuse and infiltrate and co-opt. Number three is when those have succeeded, he goes to coercion. And that's where we get anger, hatred, murder. And if you look, as I say, at pick your Antifa, communists, Nazis, any of these organizations, you have anger, hatred, and murder. That becomes the tactic, intimidation. And if you don't go along with them, what they do is threaten you. How many people do you know that don't have a political sign out in front of their yard because they really don't want to take the chance that somebody is going to come by and vandalize their house? That's intimidation. That's a tactic of the evil one. I was listening to Ron Dart this week, and he has got a series which he calls The Origins of Evil. And he said that there was a guy that wrote a book. You all familiar with the Nuremberg Trials? After World War II, the Allies set up a tribunal to try the Nazis for war crimes. This guy was a psychiatrist, and he went over there and observed the Nuremberg trial and interviewed the defendants and so forth. And one of the things that he came away with was that the Nazis that did all these atrocities were not insane. They were completely sane and rational. They just loved murder. We tend to think of anybody that could do something like that must be a madman. No, they're, they're not. They're perfectly sane. They're perfectly rational. They have just decided that that's the side they're on and they are going to murder in order to obtain their objectives. And the Germans, being really efficient and good engineers, set up industrial-scale murder. Murder, by the way, is really hard, and disposal of bodies is really hard, and the Germans had a really hard time with it until they finally figured it out and got it going on a production line basis. But they studied it. They worked on it. They tried to figure out how we can do this most efficiently. This is evil. It is not madness. Evil and madness are not the same thing. Now, mad people may do things that are evil, but evil people are not necessarily mad. So, why do people choose evil? And it is a choice. First off, your own appetite. The woman, when she chose to eat of the forbidden fruit, looked at it and said, oh man, that's beautiful, and it looks really tasty, and not only that, it's going to make me wise. Ooh, I really like this. So that's the first thing that will get you to choose evil, is your own appetite. And of course, people will choose evil out of ignorance or confusion. That was the other technique. Confusion, deception, so forth. And people will choose evil just because they're deceived. And I will suggest to you that that's what's going on with a lot of our culture today. You have a lot of people in our culture who have been convinced that evil is good. 
And so they have chosen evil because they have been deceived. By the way, those people are the easiest ones to reach because ignorance is 100% curable. Stupidity is not. In fact, there was a, <laughs> a guy that said something. You know, when you're dead, you don't know you're dead. Everybody around you recognizes you're gone and they grieve. Stupidity is kind of like that too. When you're stupid, you don't know you're stupid, but everybody around you does. So stupidity is hard to cure, but ignorance you can. And then another reason for choosing evil is out of fear. In other words, if I say something or do something or I don't go along with this, it's going to result in damage to me, to my career, to my property, to my family, whatever. Because if I don't go along with this, they're going to come after me. So that will get people to go along with evil. And then the final reason that people choose evil is out of perversity. They choose evil because they hate God explicitly. That, from Satan's point of view, is the creme de la creme. If you can get somebody to behave that way, Satan has won in that person's heart. If he can get you to choose evil simply because you know it's evil and God doesn't like it, therefore I am going to do it. That's perversity. And as I say, we have a lot of people in our culture today who are perverse in that way. They do evil simply because God says not to. Not deceived. They know what the rules are. They know what God's attitude is toward that thing. And they hate God so they will do evil just to spite. Now, one of the things that we know from Scripture is evil can win tactically but not strategically. What does that mean? That means like in the garden, Satan had a victory. He took out the man and the woman, made them mortal. That was a tactical victory. But what God says is strategically, there's going to be a Messiah. And that Messiah is going to bruise your head, which is to say, destroy you, whereas you will only be able to bruise his heel. So strategically, God is going to win. Tactically, Satan very often wins. So, our job as part of the participants in the battlefield that is this earth, remember there's a battle going on in heaven, the earth is a theater of that battlefield. So our job therefore is to deny Satan as many tactical victories as we can. God will take care of the strategic victories. That's the Messiah. That's Yeshua. He'll take care of that. Your job is to deny Satan as many tactical victories as you are able. And what that means first off is you don't fall into sin. If you become a casualty then you become ineffective. But the second thing that you should do is you should help those who are being deceived, who are being intimidated, or who are stepping into a place where they shouldn't, help them to stay out of that, both personally and culturally. That's preaching the gospel. That's writing letters to the editors. That's voting. That's talking to your friends. That's educating people so that they can't be deceived.
And when Satan gets a tactical victory, go against it. Remember it says in Scripture that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I got a news for you guys. Gates are defensive. Except perhaps in a high wind, nobody ever gets attacked by a gate. Right? So a gate is defensive. And what the scripture says is you attack the gate and you'll prevail. It doesn't say defend yourself against this evil gate. It's very straightforward. So, warfare. Two modes. One, of course, is spiritual. And there your battle plan is Ephesians 6. There's an armor of God. And that's for spiritual warfare. So the belt of truth, you need to know what the truth is, and that you find out by studying the word. The breastplate of righteousness, in other words, if you are not well behaved yourself, you got a foot in both camps, and having a foot in both camps will cause you to fall into the ditch between them. Shoes for your feet, having put on, given the gospel, so the shoes are the gospel, and in all circumstances, take the shield of faith. In other words, believe that you're going to win, and that will be your shield. And then the helmet of salvation. You are a saved person, and that's your helmet. And then finally, the sword of the Spirit. And that is prayer. So that's your battle plan, if you will, for spiritual warfare. At some point, it may become necessary to engage in physical warfare. That's how the Nazis were destroyed. It took most of the rest of the world mounting up and going in there and cleaning out that rat's nest. So at some point it may get to physical warfare, but make sure that you are engaged in the spiritual always and be prepared for the other if you need to. You really don't want to do that, but it may happen to. First off, be not afraid. Fear is a primary weapon of the enemy. Be not afraid. Do what you need to do and don't fear. Know who you serve and why. Because if you can articulate and explain who you serve and why you serve him, you may have an opportunity to turn somebody around. Personal testimony is really powerful. We live in a culture where everybody has heard the gospel. They all know the gospel. They don't care. So telling them the gospel is probably not the best way to do it. The best way to do it is to tell them what God has done for you. Your testimony, personal testimony. That's very powerful. Don't buy into the hate. If you watch on TV or the internet or whatever medium you use, what you see is people screaming in rage at us. Don't buy into the hate. You may have to defeat them. You may have to contend with them. You may have to fight with them. But don't hate them. Because hate corrodes you. And if you succumb to hatred, it will eventually corrode you and make you ineffective. So do what you need to do, but don't go into hate. And then finally speak the truth in all circumstances. Peace is not worth any price. I'll say it again. 
peace is not so precious that you will spend everything to get it. Sometimes peace is not possible. You need to speak the truth, even if it causes strife. Peace is a very high goal. We pray for it every week. But it isn't the ultimate goal. Truth is more important than peace. Oh, thank you. <laughs> what does this have to do with Halloween? My dear wife asked. I started this off at Halloween. Remember I said that there's warfare going on in heaven. Satan, as we see in the Bible, does not have unrestricted access to the earth. So in the book of Job, he can't touch Job until God gives him permission. What Halloween is, is an opening in the diaphragm between that war and this battlefield. So what you have in Halloween is people try deliberately to open up the world to the evil that is above. Which is why I decided to talk about evil. Because this is the season where people deliberately try and open that up. Shama